0: Hello, and welcome to the Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we get our guests to talk about stories which they think are important but underreported. They bring to us some ideas and shine a light on some important issues. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Douglas Alexander, Chair of UNICEF UK and a former Labour Party Cabinet Minister and Sundar Katwala, Director of British Future Think Tank, which a think tank which looks at identity, integration, migration and opportunity. That's a lot of stuff you're looking at, Sundar.
1: You know, it's all busy. It's busy, it's
0: busy, busy. Right. Well, thank to you, um, thanks both of you for for being here today, Douglas. I'm going to start with you first. A very, very interesting topic, which is something that is really, I think, the issue of the day. But we don't really talk about it that much.
2: Uh, yeah, I've been thinking this week about the issue of identity and why it's suddenly come to be such a dominating part of our public life. The BBC approached me earlier in the year and said, could I make a radio series that really tries to answer the question, um, why beneath all of the headlines is there a deeper question of who are we? Are we British or European? Are we Scottish or British? How do we deal with the issue of anti-Semitism that's re-emerged in our public life? And so this week I concluded this radio series trying to make sense of why identity has in many ways overwhelmed a more traditional form of politics that's been focused on income. And in a way that, frankly, I didn't really anticipate when I made the series and did the interviews around Britain in July, that's become an even more dominating question in recent weeks. So it may not have been the headline this week, but I think it's a trend line that we're experiencing in our public life, those issues of identity coming to the fore.
0: Well, it certainly felt that you know the the underlying issues driving whether it's brexit whether it's trump in america the general rise of populism underneath it all it's not just the economics but there's a cultural factor as well the sense of identity politics where do we belong communities changing the rights and the wrongs of that did you did you reach any easy conclusions?
2: Well, the truth is, exactly as you suggest, Aisha, there's a very live debate in the academic community at the moment as to whether the roots of populism lie in economics or in culture. And frankly, they lie in both. Um, The truth is, there are many, many people who feel left out and left behind by the economy that we see in Europe, in the United Kingdom, in the United States at the moment. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is a yearning for recognition, for acknowledgement. And in that sense, the radio series that I made involved going around the country and talking to people from street traders in Leicester to the Somali-Welsh community in Cardiff and everyone in between. And, And the sense I had was that actually belonging for people in Britain today means two things. First of all, it means a sense of security. So people associate a sense of home with a sense of being secure. And that's partly economic security, but it's also physical security as well but also that people's sense of belonging comes from a sense of shared stories, stories that we tell together as a people and as a country. And in that sense, my conclusion after making this series was, unless we find ways of giving people a greater sense of economic security and also develop better shared stories, then we're going to continue to see a politics that's characterised more by division and grievance than by togetherness and hope.
0: And one of the things that I was struck by listening to the um, to the series, you spoke to me, a market trader in Leicester, and she had said that this city had changed beyond recognition from when she was growing up, and um, a lot of people didn't speak English, and she found that quite sort of difficult, and she was very very up, kind of angry about it. Now you're from a political tradition which welcomes diversity, multiculturalism. How did you find that? How did you sort of navigate your way through with with her views, which are probably quite different
2: from your views? Um, well, what was really interesting about that interview, we arrived in the market in the middle of Leicester. We had, a researcher from the BBC had phoned up and got a couple of names that we could try and introduce ourselves. But we were literally, the producer and I, wandering around with a microphone talking to people. And the first woman that we spoke to was that woman who we aired at the beginning, which was really a cry of pain saying the city's away to rack and ruin, I don't recognise the town and city that I grew up in, people don't speak English, all the things that you've said. Once we'd spoken to her, we literally moved 10 yards along in the market to another stall where there was... um, a kid maybe about the same age as my son, 14 or 15, with his mother, and we interviewed the mother and then we interviewed the son as well. The son wanted to go to drama school and was an incredibly inspirational kid. And the mother, who literally is 10 yards away from a woman who says everything about Leicester has got worse, said, I really love Leicester, I love the diversity, I love the changes that we're witnessing, whether it's the people or the food or the opportunities... And it was a really salutary reminder that two people could experience an almost identical set of external circumstances and process it in a radically different way. And I've thought a lot about those two women since we did those interviews. And I'm not sure, and it's just a conjecture, but I think it was partly that the kid who we met was so animated and excited about the prospect of his next steps, it was almost he was pulling his mother along in his wake of excitement about the possibilities of the future. And it seems to me that one of the big challenges that we have in Britain today is there are too many communities and too many towns which don't see themselves as part of the country's future. And if you want to make sense of a lot of the headlines around Brexit and other things, we need to give people an inclusive sense of belonging that gives them a degree of confidence that they're going to be far part of the Britain that's becoming rather than part of the Britain that was.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting. And that it's interesting about you saying meeting the wee boy. But it's almost like the, the wee boy you spoke to, he is the sort of outward looking, you know, future of this country and this woman you spoke to, you know, probably a bit older and, and so yep. Do you know what it kind of reminded me of, which and I think so much of our this really important discussion goes back and Douglas you will remember this famously because you were very close to Gordon Brown, the moment when Gordon met Gillian Duffy. And I think that was a seminal moment in British, not just politics, but kind of society as well, because you kind of had two world views really clashing up against each other. I
2: will literally never forget that. For <laughs> I was um working with others trying to prepare Gordon for the uh, second television debate that was due to happen. We had um, spent the night, I think um, in Leeds or somewhere, we were um, uh, uh, outside of Manchester and then the Prime Ministerial convoy was moving into Manchester. Alistair Campbell and I were in a car together behind uh, Gordon who went off and and, uh, met Mrs Duffy And Alistair and I were sitting in an EAT, uh, the restaurant in Manchester, and it was Blackberries in those days, not mobile phones. Both of our Blackberries just literally lifted off the table. (laughs) They started vibrating so much, saying, um, well, you can imagine what it said, um, get yourself to the hotel where uh, Gordon is, because he was on the way to Radio 2, where he did the famous interview with Jeremy Gordon. Oh, he had his head in his his hands. hands. Exactly. So after he had done that on, on Radio 2, he came back to the hotel in Manchester, and Alistair and I were there, and, I mean, Gordon was absolutely mortified. And but do you
0: think he, do you think, what should he have done? Or what well, I think,
2: you? I mean, I think he had a very human reaction in the circumstances, which is he wanted to personally apologise to her. And and those of us around him realised very quickly that so deep was the mortification. And frankly, he was live on national television 24 or twenty eight or thirty hours later in the second television debate, he needed to apologise to her. Otherwise he just wouldn't have been able to continue to to campaign in the way that he needed to. And in that sense he he um he did that and 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 in that sense it was a it was a brutal and 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 terrible experience because of the the, the mortification, the shame that he felt. But my learning out of that relative to what we've just been talking about is We need to honour people's sense of wanting to belong to something. This is about culture as well as about economics. So, of course, we need a more equal society with people having more economic security. But actually, the enduring appeal of a sense of belonging is very real. And particularly for those of us on the left, unless we recognise and honour and respect that truth, then, um, frankly, the centre-left will keep losing to politicians who tell a more compelling story about belonging than others.
0: And Sundar, your think tank has done a lot of very thoughtful work in this sort of area. How do you think it is possible to create these stories of belongings or are our communities just becoming too fractured along culture, religion, economic status, race?
1: I think I think it's more important. It might be more difficult. It's more important to do it. It's, thinking about why is the Gordon Brown encounter with uh, Gillian Duffy iconic. It's a, it's a, it captures a moment of miscommunication that actually tells you a lot about the politics of that whole decade. There's a very good case that says, um, you know, Treasury chancellors will say, you know, but migration has come in and people have paid tax and it's been good for the economy and other people are saying, but I don't know if I'm even allowed to speak about it mm-hmm. or not and there's a talking past that goes on so going back and sort of saying well how do we have this conversation this is where i think the liberal side of the debate has misunderstood it we know it's about culture and identity as well as about economics we see it with brexit it's so much easier to just go back to the economics you can measure yeah. it you can talk about it you can have plans mm-hmm. and policies for it it's much more difficult to talk about the identity and also you've got a very and the lived tough, experience yeah, of people. you've got very tough people are telling you their lived experience and there's also a very tough populist challenge that says there's just too many It's too much. They're taking things. They don't want to be like us. I'm not allowed to talk about it. I'm angry. And, of course, politicians are trying to govern a country. Recoil from that anger. But what liberals then go and do is they make a... They, they miss the point about shared stories and they think, well, we'd better make the other argument back. Let's be pro-diversity. Let's say it's not too many. People mm. have always come. Let's say they're paying in things. Let's say culture and diversity is great because the food's better. And what's interesting, these are all parts of the truth that resonate at one market mm. stall and not another. But they're all stories that say they are good for us. They are good for us is still a them and us story. It hasn't tried to say, what are we going to do together to span that 10 uh, yards and say, what are the shared stories we could have?
0: In in terms of those 10 yards, and I think you're absolutely right. I think the right um, and people who are very, very against immigration use stories and they're often not really rooted in empirical evidence the left always goes to um, facts and figures. Here's my spreadsheet. Yes, hello. Yeah. Here's a graph, yep. kind of thing. but how do you how do you build the sense of belonging with the the woman in the market stall? Who basically says I I don't like the my city because I don't I hear languages that I don't understand and and with with the optimistic yeah. forward looking I love you know how do you build that Are we being naive thinking we can build that I think, sense I think we can share I think this? we
1: can do it but you can't you can't bridge by just saying but what about all the good things that's waiting for the people who think it's good a story I spent a lot of time telling uh, last month but across the last four years was that a lot of people had never heard that the armies that fought for Britain 100 years ago looked more like the Britain of 2018 than they did the Britain of 1918. The You know, a million Indian soldiers, three million troops from the Commonwealth, that everybody in Britain today actually was part of that history, but... Ethnic and faith minorities and might not um, have heard that. You're campaigning um, to
0: have somebody recognised on the bank, not that, ethnic that, minority. That's,
1: that's another campaign that, that's been there. But in terms of remembrance, it's actually something that people really cherish, people think mm. is a deep tradition. It's the sort of thing, if we change too fast, we might lose it. And so then to discover that in a mixed classroom, you've actually got the story of the ethnic diversity. Over this centenary, it's quite interesting because the British Legion and the government and the army were telling a story as well. The number of people who'd heard that, Indian soldiers were there a hundred years ago, rose from four out of ten people to seven out of ten people. So suddenly we've got a shared story that mm-hmm. we that we didn't know we had. We've got a shared history that we didn't know we had. It's surprisingly reassuring if the people you think have just turned up actually are deeply in your country's history.
0: Well, Douglas, thank you for, for raising that. And um Douglas's series is available um on the on the on the BBC. It's very, very um interesting. And I do think that this is a a topic that we all shy away from um but it is actually i think the yeah. issue that is kind of undercutting all the bigger meta-politics that's going on at the moment. So thank you, uh, Douglas. Now, Sundar, coming to your um, underreported story, not an underreported issue, but there's a particular thing within it that you think that we haven't focused on enough this week.
1: So we're hearing more and more all the time, of course, about Brexit and might no-deal Brexit happen, and we heard a lot about immigration this week with the white paper. The group I think we've really forgotten are the Brits in the EU, waiting to hear what might happen and what no-deal might mean for them. And while we were all focused on Westminster, the European Commission was bringing out its no-deal plans. And the European Commission has always said, we care about the Europeans of Britain and the Brits abroad. Citizens should be the first priority. But what their no-deal planning says is... um, you won't have any legal status the day after a No Deal Brexit, and so we advise all of the governments to act as quickly as possible to put in place whatever they need to do to make that not the case. So it's a it's rather a it's rather a hands off approach to what is meant to be the first priority. And ironically, this group were the reason that Theresa May was very criticised for being very slow to make the guarantee here because we we're meant to care about the Brits uh, abroad as well. We haven't done enough for this group. I think there is a solution. To this we made a deal last christmas and told people they should be assured by the deal we made last christmas that they can carry on their lives because the 28 governments have made a deal last the,
0: christmas i gave you a
1: deal but the last <laughs> christmas i gave you a deal and this christmas we're still saying nothing's agreed till. It yeah next <laughs> this this christmas we're still saying nothing is agreed till everything is agreed agreed so maybe in three months time you'll have the deal you'll have the reassurance we promised you Maybe you won't have it at all. Wait and watch the high political dramas to find out what it means to your lives. The governments could say, whatever happens, we're holding up that deal because a deal between the governments, even if we've fallen out over everything else, is much, much better than 28 unilateral agreements and let's hope there's a government in Belgium to put one through and let's hope every parliament and every government manages to deal with it.
0: Sunta, do you think there is a chance that uh, British citizens in the EU will be kicked out of their country the day after
1: a no-deal Brexit. I don't think you'll see any government that wants to do that. I don't think you'll see that happening. The point is, if the governments haven't acted, and it's a high priority, I think, in Spain and in Germany and in France, and Poland has acted very well on it as well, but if it doesn't happen legally in every country as the priority thing they need to do when they're doing everything else, they won't have Legal status, and there'll be all, all sorts of trouble about pension rights, healthcare access, social security, and in some cases, the right to stay and do the jobs that they're that they're doing. So there's been. Goodwill and warm words on every side. You get past this Christmas and warm words aren't enough without a solution that tells people they'll be safe.
0: And Douglas, you were a former Europe minister. Do you have concerns? Um, I mean, we talk again, we we focus a lot about EU citizens in this country. But what what do you think about um, British people in Europe? And and do you think they will be affected?
2: um, There are over a million um, UK citizens living elsewhere in Europe. And this is a time of real concern not just for them, but for their families. Um, I talked recently to Neil Ferguson, the historian who's now based at Stanford, and he said one of the aspects of the immigration debate in Britain that we forget is that really up until the 1970s, Britain was a net exporter of people.
1: Oh wow! And actually yeah. there are
2: very, very few families in the United Kingdom who, if you inquire into their family history, don't have relatives who travelled overseas, whether to the Commonwealth or elsewhere. So it's rather like the point that Sundar made earlier about how do you rediscover the truth about the um, remembrance celebrations and the diversity that characterised British forces 100 years ago. Similarly, there's another dimension to the immigration debate, which is not just immediately, are there a million UK citizens living across Europe? But for centuries, we've exported people right around the world. And that's really been a part of the story that we just haven't heard in the immediate Brexit negotiations or in the campaign that preceded Brexit a couple of years ago.
0: And um, how do you feel about the... Uh, immigration stuff that came out um, this week. Do you think there does need to be some reform on um, immigration, the idea of a a sort of a wage threshold, a skills threshold? Do you think that is sort of necessary?
2: Well, I've never seen a wage threshold and a skills threshold as being one and the same thing. And one of the unfortunate characteristics of this week was the message, however inadvertently, that the government seemed to send that anybody earning less than £30,000 was somehow unskilled. You know, I think about the people who care for family members of mine and, and others, and they are deeply skilled and deeply valued in terms of what they do. So I think they delayed and delayed and delayed putting out this white paper. Um, even when they put it out, it it begged more questions than it answered. And I'm, I'm very concerned, I have to say, both about what the future will be in relation to immigration, but more broadly how we're going to get through the next few months in a way that means people can have peace of mind about themselves and their families. And
0: do you think there does need to be a bit of restriction on freedom of movement to sort of honour some of the concerns that some Leave voters had?
2: Well, there's two dimensions to this. One is when I look back on our time in government, there were steps that could have been taken that weren't. And I think ultimately that's that's been a... a, a a contributory factor to the way the debate around immigration has moved. There could have been transitional controls yeah. imposed when the Eastern European countries joined the European Union. Um, and in that sense, I think that there are always lessons that you can learn from if the you past. Had,
0: if we had our time again, would you think yeah, we'd have done that? Partly again?
2: because, truthfully, in government, we didn't estimate accurately the number of people who were going to come to the UK and in that sense, that's a real problem. I think a second dimension, though, is I think in Europe's own interest there is going to be change on freedom of movement over the next decade. The real risk and the real tragedy for the United Kingdom is that change happens when Britain's outside the European Union the rather than inside. Yeah. But it feels to me that this is a conversation that on its own terms and in its own interests the EU27 are going to be having in the years ahead.
0: Now, Sundar, you have been doing a lot of work um, looking at the immigration question. You've been doing a lot of work with the Home Affairs Select Committee. What was your response to the immigration paper?
1: Well, I think there's a real opportunity here as well that we might risk throwing away, actually, that, that people saw the vote, whichever side they were on, as a, as a reset moment when mm. we could work out what we'd got right, what we got wrong, and we could take that back to the market stalls mm. in Leicester mm. and say actually, what should we do now? And what should we do now unlocks a lot Pragmatism because people say, well, you know high skills are good and students is good, big consensus on that. But care workers are more popular than bankers when you think about the migrants you <laughs> want good in your country. True, and so it unlocks, it unlocks a pragmatism that instead of saying, well, you've got no choice about the rules or we we're only able to tweak in our negotiations, what would you choose? And we've been right around the country holding our national conversation on immigration. You get past that first 10 minutes of a frustrated, we haven't been heard conversation and people are starting to make decisions and people start to make uh, pragmatic choices about how you manage it better locally and recognise you need it. So I think the government has been very late and slow because it's such a divisive issue to actually put a bit of faith in the public actually having quite pragmatic views about well, immigration.
0: I mean, I think that's one of the great tragedies about where we've got to um, in terms of how the whole Brexit stuff's been conducted because I think you're right. This could have been a moment to just sort of have a sort of clean piece of paper and have a, a, a calm, sensible and um, inclusive discussion about immigration. And some of the work you've done has been really, really interesting. And some of the Home Affairs Select Committee stuff shows that there are a lot of areas there's a massive amount of consensus um, on the issue of immigration involving the public and businesses and, you know, civil society. And it feels like, you know, all of that, that chance to have that really big national conversation has just been squandered. And it's like, here's a last-minute white paper that we're still fighting
1: about. And also, if you get out and talk to people, as the government is now saying, consults. 12 months, you unlock a lot of this pragmatism. Mm. The only place you don't have a balanced debate on immigration is on the internet uh, and in the media. And it's just much more (laughs) more polarised. And we we found this, that that, most of the people who took part in our online survey had the strongest anti or pro views and were completely different to the general public. So if you don't go out, an organised engagement in immigration, then you hear this incredibly loud and shouty debate. And everybody with balanced views, their pressures and gains, they switch off and they go away because nobody wants to be in the middle yeah. of that shouting. And so also the government's there's, got responsibility, I think. I
0: mean, yeah. Sundra and I took part in a debate a while ago about um, how black and Asian and minority ethnic people are um, responding to, to Brexit. And what was very, very interesting, the sort of consensus from the room um, was that they wanted, people wanted to have a sensible discussion about immigration, which has unfortunately yet again been completely denied. Well, look, Sunda, thank you um, for that story. And of course, we'll be watching very keenly to see what happens to um, you know EU nationals in Britain, but of course, Brits abroad in um, Europe as well. Right, we're now moving on to my favourite section of the show, which is heroes and villains. And we're going to start with villains because it is pantomime season, so we do need uh, villains. Sunda, your villain.
1: Well, my villain... Um, is Jose Mourinho, the manager of Manchester United, as he was until he was sacked. But because um, he won't now manage in um, English football, he was having a miserable time, his team were playing badly and he wasn't handling it very well. But we're going to miss Jose Mourinho, the pantomime villain of English football for the last 10 years. What what will we do without a villain like that? Who's going to step up to the plate and give us somebody to get annoyed with?
0: (laughs) I think our politicians will probably do that. Douglas, were you a fan of the special one?
2: Um, I agree that he had a certain value in in shocking and amusing people in equal measure, but... Uh I think it was inevitable because, um, as I've felt for a long time, the Reds have been underperforming this year. (laughs)
0: Boom! See what what I did there? Boom, boom. Well, I'd say I have one thing in common with um, Jose Mourinho, apart from I've been fired and I'm very special, obviously. (laughs) Um, So he has a real penchant for fancy hotels and he stayed in this hotel called the Lowry in Manchester for like almost 900 nights and racked up this massive hotel bill. And when I was working for Tony Blair in 2005, I stayed at that hotel as well. It was really nice. But also there was loads of celebrities. There was Kylie Minogue was there, Jerry Springer was there, and one night we managed to convince it's Jerry's oh, well this is these are my
1: people. These are my people. <laughs> this is why Brexit <laughs> happened.
0: This is why yeah. this is why the <laughs> Labour Party why, got bankrupt. This is why the deficit happened by the sense of it. <laughs> but we went up to Jerry Springer and we asked Jerry Springer to come out and support Labour and he did and we were so pleased. But then Alistair Campbell totally vetoed it, which is probably for the best. So that's my uh, Douglas, um your villains of the week.
2: Um, actually, rather more seriously, my villains of the, of the week are the men, and they were all men, who abused Anna Subri while she was walking to undertake a television interview across College Green. Um, that's a patch of ground that I know very well from the time that I was in Parliament. And it, it, the reason I think it's so worrying, we saw it with Owen Jones a couple of weeks previously, was it suggests the rising tide of not just abuse, but physical threats in our politics. Of course, we saw the murder of Joe Cox um, in 2016, but none of us want a political discourse where if you disagree, you're an enemy rather than an opponent. And I have to say, when I saw that clip online, it was a pretty dispiriting end to the year because ultimately we need a politics in which we can agree to disagree, where we can respect each other even if we disagree with each other. And the idea that British politicians going about their work, whatever their views, should be subject to that kind of abuse and physical violence is not the kind of country that I recognise or that I want to see in the future.
0: I mean, you've been in politics for a long time.
2: Thanks very much. Yeah,
0: (laughs) You're looking very good on it, though. You're looking very good on it. But, you know, have you ever known a time like as vicious as it is now? Because sometimes I wonder, are we being overly kind of sensitive or hysterical about how bad things no, are? Or honestly, do you- I don't think
2: we are. I mean, I've been out of the Commons since 2015. And during the time we saw a lot of online abuse. And we went through the Scottish referendum where there was terrible abuse online for, uh, for um, politicians who were participating. But when I talked to former colleagues who are still in Parliament, they describe a level of physical threat to themselves and their family that I never encountered in yeah. 18 years in politics. And in that sense, I absolutely believe we're in a different space from where we were even three, four or five years ago. And that's deeply troubling. I think it's partly what Sundar says about the inevitable polarisation created by more of our politics happening online. But I think we all, whatever our political opinions, have a strong shared interest in saying that should have no place in but our you, democratic you, life.
0: You say that, but one of the things that I've been really depressed about as well is just that I think tribalism, even amongst our elected representatives, is so high and it fuels a lot of this. So, for example, Clive Lewis tweeted out afterwards almost kind of saying, ha Anasubi, like, just remember who the real enemies are. It's not the left. It's it's yeah. the hard right. I mean, that's not a helpful comment in terms of that is a fellow parliamentarian being physically intimidated, a woman being physically intimidated. I think you've
2: just managed masterful British understatement. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, seriously, we need to, if, as Democrats, uphold the idea that actually we have more in common than what divides us. And we have a shared interest in speaking up for and standing with and expressing solidarity with politicians who are subject to physical threats or intimidation, whatever their politics. You don't get a pass if it's happening to a Tory. You don't get a pass if it's happening to Labour. It should be called out whoever it's happening to. And Clive Lewis's tweet, I just thought, was... um, it, it said more about him than it did about the state of our politics.
0: It's also a far cry from, um. I mean, one of your great political heroes, and indeed my political heroes, is somebody who was, you know, the greatest leader we never had, John Smith. And I mean, John Smith was rabidly anti-Tory, yet had a ability to debate compassionately and very, you know, sharply. But, you know, it's. do you think we'll ever get back to that? time and that type of sort of political leader well,
2: john was and remains my political hero in no small part for exactly the reasons you've described um donald jura at his funeral in Clooney parish church in edinburgh said um john could start a ceilidh in an empty room <laughs> and that's a perfect description of john that uh, i will be catching the sleeper up to scotland for christmas and I always remember when I got on the sleeper the fact that John Smith, probably to the detriment of his health, would stay up in the sleeper lounge, the bar on the train, until 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. As Pat McFadden once said to me, if you see Preston going in either direction, you've stayed up too late. Um, But the fact is, John had an innate positivity about himself, about his family, about his life, that meant he didn't feel threatened retaining friendships across the political divide while being a fearsome and and strong advocate for a politics of social justice. And that's ultimately the kind of politicians that I want. I want people to be passionate about their politics, but to be civil in their personal relationships. And I think we we need and we deserve politicians who are both.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. uh, We're coming on to the heroes of the week. And I have chosen... A very hardworking group of people who this week have really had their um, skills tested. And they are the lip readers of the nation. (laughs) So um, we had a big scandal. This is how ridiculous our politics is. Forget that Brexit's happening and we're going to stockpile fridges and medicines and everything like that. We've all gone nuts over whether Jeremy Corbyn apparently said stupid woman or stupid people. Um, And I just think, well, A, the lip reading was just hilarious. We had entire packages of people going Puh is a plosive. Wuh is a different kind of thing. It's just ridiculous. But I think that what really annoyed me was that somebody, and Douglas will know this, that I have dedicated a lot of my political life to gender equality and trying to promote women, and it really does my head in when po- politicians on both sides sort of weaponise a kind of small incident of sexism to try and make a bigger political point. And um, the Conservatives went absolutely nuts about this, but it was completely sort of whole It reminded me of when David Cameron told Angela Eagle to calm down, dear, which mm. was a terrible moment and a stupid moment. But of course, the Labour Party, you know, weaponized it and said, this man is all terrible. The Labour Party's got its own problems with sexism. We can't even elect a female leader. We can't even sort out having a female deputy Leader right now, the Conservatives have really not got a leg to stand on on terms of feminism as well. Loads of the cuts have been borne mm-hmm. by um, women, and of course Theresa May let back into the party two men accused of terrible sexual misconduct this week. So that my kind of. Angst about this week. I think it looked to me like Jeremy Corbyn did say stupid woman, and I think he should have just stood up and apologised and said, I am really sorry about it. But the kind of full outrage mm. around this as well just does my head in. So that's my. What did you. Do you think he said
2: women or people? Listen, I don't claim to be a lip reader. It seemed to <laughs> me that it, it seemed an odd thing to say, to say stupid people, I have to say. <laughs> stupid but, weeple. Um, yes. But. <laughs> Truthfully, any politician should be big enough to put their hands up and say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. And actually, I think one of the reasons that politicians are disdained so much is that the public often don't see the human side of politicians. And in that sense, it's a very human reaction to sometimes make mistakes. We all make mistakes every week and every year of our lives. And in that sense, I think it was was an opportunity not just to not have a phony political argument, but also just to show a human side and say... I actually got that wrong, Well I'm interestingly
0: sorry. on that, Barry Sheerman a couple of weeks ago was accused of making quite a sexist comment to Andrea Ledson. And he stood up in the chamber the next day or and just made the most humble, honest human apology. And he said, Actually, my daughter's called me out on it. So I'm here to apologise. Exactly. And I'm re- and you know what, it was done with good grace and yep. humour and Andrea Leadsom accepted it. He said, I have learnt a big lesson from this. And I just wonder, if, why didn't Corbyn do the same thing? What what's your take on this particular story?
1: What, what you see, I think, is a big clash between norms we all say we want to hold up and the partisan blinkers going on. And what I'd like to see more of us do is actually say consistency really matters here. You've only got standing to call out uh, bad behaviour on the other side and say I'm upholding anti-sexism if you can show us that you did do it to your own team as well. One thing is just fighting the political battle. When you police it on your own side, you know, Boris Johnson has just been uh, told by the Conservatives nothing wrong with his comments about letterboxers and burkers. If you're calling out on your own side, it's brave, it's challenging, you're upholding the norm when you're just shouting, I don't like the other side, you're not doing anything. So I think I think it only counts now if you if you police norms on your own team, not just the opponents.
0: Absolutely. What's good for the goose should be good for the gander. Well, thank you so much to my guests, Douglas Alexander and Sunderkat. Well, that was an absolutely fascinating um, discussion looking at, I think, some of the really big issues that have just crossed this whole year of politics and will continue to dominate um, next week as well, next year as well. Right, well, thank you very much for listening. Uh, this is the Unheard podcast with Aisha Hazarika. Have a lovely Christmas.